Hi, it's Rob Little here with details of something even more exciting than watching 11 Supreme Court judges copulate in a hot tub. Uh, you won't want to miss this. I will soon be joining Brendan for a special live edition of the Brendan O'Neill Show. Miss that and your friends will shun you and you will be forever denied the love of Jesus Christ. It's part of Podcast Live in London on Saturday, 4th of October. Book your tickets now at something called podcastlive.com. This Parliament is a dead Parliament. Parliament has not been prorogued. This unelected Prime Minister should resign. Any of us subject to death threats and abuse may often quote his words, surrender out of betrayal. I have to say, Mr Speaker, I've never heard such humbug in all my life. Hello and welcome to the Spikes podcast. I'm Tom Slater filling in for Fraser Myers, who's on holiday this week, but I'm joined as ever by Spikes columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. As well as two special guests, uh, Spikes editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spikes columnist Luke Gittos. Hello. So today we're going to devote the entire show to all things Brexit and British politics. It's been another remarkable, historic, quite demoralising in many ways week. We've had the landmark Supreme Court judgment ruling that Boris Johnson's prorogation of Parliament was unlawful. Huge controversy there as the law stepped into the political fray in a pretty unprecedented way. We've had the Labour conference full of infighting over Brexit until it was brought to an abrupt end by that Supreme Court ruling. We've had, frankly, insane scenes in Parliament with Remainer MPs accusing Boris Johnson of fueling division by using the word surrender. We've got MPs still refusing a general election. We've got the Brexit deadline fast approaching, another extension seeming all but certain, and the Brexit vote seeming as unlikely to be implemented as ever. So all cheery stuff. But to kick things off, let's talk about the Supreme Court ruling, Luke. So it was announced on Tuesday by Lady Hale. Huge moment, huge reactions to it. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah. So the background to this decision was that the High Court had previously decided that the exercise of the uh, power of prorogation was non-justiciable, meaning it was not an area where the courts could intervene. And that case was considered by the Master of the Rolls, who was one of the most senior judges in the country. Obviously, the Attorney General had advised, now we know exactly the same, that the prorogation was completely lawful. So the expectation going into this case was that the Supreme Court would side with the High Court for all sorts of reasons. And this decision is absolutely unprecedented, and it is an absolutely massive constitutional shift. And I think the the one thing it really illustrates is just how much the judiciary has changed in the last few decades. This is not the judiciary from the early 20th century. And what the commentary has completely missed is how much judges' role in public life has shifted. You know, if you think back to the early part of the 20th century, judges were supposed to be completely impartial readers and applicants of the law. They just read and applied the law in a completely neutral way. Now, of course, that was always a bit of a myth. You know, judges always were in some senses political. But there was an understanding amongst the judiciary that their authority was not drawn on their ability to bring their own moral or political framework to their decisions. It was drawn from their objectivity and impartiality. And I think what you see in the course of the 1970s, the 1980s, 1990s is a gradual creeping in of the judiciary into areas of public life. So, for example, in 1977, you have the publication of uh, Griffiths' book, uh, The Politics of the Judiciary, which sort of sets out this issue quite clearly and says, look, 
we should stop pretending that judges aren't political. They do perform a political role. They have to perform a political role and they fill the gap left by politics. You know, they read into the law their own moral judgments and their own political positions. And then gradually throughout the 70s and 80s, you have the growth of the doctrine of judicial review, which is the framework which was used to challenge this decision. So the idea that ministerial decisions can be open to intervention by the court begins to grow and grow. It becomes susceptible in more areas of public life. And actually, Lord Panic, when he was making his argument before the High Court, actually referenced the series of cases which show how the judges are becoming more assertive in their role in in judging uh, executive decision making. So this is a very clear trend. It's an accepted trend amongst anyone who studies the history of the judiciary seriously. And what I think we saw in the Supreme Court was kind of a culmination of this. You know, this was a clear expression of the Supreme Court departing from the precedent that was articulated by the High Court and saying, we can intervene in these particular circumstances. So in their reasoning, they were not considering the legal length of a proper prorogation. What they said they were considering instead was whether or not Boris Johnson had strayed beyond the legal limits of his power. And they said that that has always been open to judicial intervention. So if a minister ever strode beyond his power in in executing a power, either delegated to them under statute or by prerogative, then their case was that the courts could intervene in those circumstances. But the reality was that was a step. That was a big step that the Supreme Court took. And it was unprecedented. And they made very clear in the course of their judgment that there is no power that cannot be susceptible to judicial intervention. Just let that sink in, that they are now saying there is no exercise of power that could not potentially be open to this kind of judicial intervention. Where this goes is completely unknowable. But I think the the important thing to say is that I think a lot of judges, senior judges, will have woken up the morning after that Supreme Court judgment worrying about the position that the judiciary are now in. Because I think the legitimacy of the Supreme Court is open to question and criticism in a way which it hasn't been since its creation. And a lot of people are now being given the impression that this is a partial call. Mm. And no matter how much they try and jest this up in legalism and say this was a well-reasoned judgment, it had its own interior logic, which of course it did. You know, you can't say this was mistaken in any aspect of its legal reasoning. But the point here is that the public will see this as the court being used politically with justification. And I think in, in, in decades past, there was always an understanding that that was exactly what judges did not want. You know, the judiciary's authority and its legitimacy was garnered from its sense of objectivity and its removal from these kinds of questions. That's exactly where its legitimacy came from. And so the more that they stray into these questions, I think the more we will legitimately question their position. And I think that's a very, very dangerous position for that court to be in. And Brendan, after the judgment was announced, um, there was a chorus of people saying, look, this is just the rule of law. It's dangerous to criticise it. It's, mm. it's dangerous to criticise justices. What do you say to that? I just think it's a completely ridiculous argument. I think Luke is absolutely right. This has been a long time coming. You know, the growth of judicial interventionism and judicial activism has been growing 
you know, in correspondence with the shrinking of the political sphere and the decline of political debate and the decline of public life in general, judicial activism has in some ways filled that gap. But Luke's absolutely right. This is a really worrying step. This is a an unprecedented step and I think a very dangerous one. I think it was an explicitly political decision. And you're not allowed to say that. I mean, if you, as you say, Tom, if you say that, they will come down on you like a ton of bricks and say, how dare you criticize our beautiful, wonderful, saintly judges? How dare you call into question the independence of the judiciary? Well, we're calling it into question because it has been called into question by their actions. This was an explicitly political case. It was a case brought by fanatical Remainers. Uh, the sight of all these people outside the court saying this is not about Brexit, this is not about politics. And you looked at those people and thought to yourself, every single one of you is a is a rabid Remainer, to be frank. Every single one of you has devoted the past three years of your life to trying to block Brexit. So if you're trying to uh, convince us that this is not about Brexit and this is not about politics, then we're just not going to buy it. So the case was brought for political reasons. Its consequences will be hugely political, and they have been already. The court was called to make a political judgment. And instead of saying, we don't do this, it's not our role, it said, we will do this, and we will relish in it, and we will force politics in a new direction. So the court has politicized itself. This is the politicization of the law. And I think that's disastrous for law and it's disastrous for politics. It's disastrous for law because if it's not independent or if it doesn't at least appear to be independent, then the practice of it becomes quite difficult and easily called into question. And it's bad for politics because the supreme authority in this country now is no longer the government or even parliament and certainly not the people who've been completely sidelined by this entire process. It's 11 justices I can only name one of them, Lady Hale, who's obviously, as Ella wrote in her column, really become a kind of cult figure. I'm sure lots of other people couldn't even name her. These people now sit above every other political institution and could potentially strike down all sorts of political decisions. That's a disaster for democracy in this country. Mm. And it was so striking as well, because as much as there was um, a lot of criticism of the justices and the judgment, and as you say, it's not illegitimate to do that, it was also so obvious that this was a means through which Remainers in Parliament and in broader society could kind of weaponise the law and weaponise the judiciary. Because if the executive does something that you don't like, there are tools at your disposal in order to inflict defeat on that government. You know, you call a vote of no confidence or you acquiesce to a call for a general election, as Boris Johnson has already put out there. Yeah. So again, look, you talking about them stepping into the kind of the vacuum it seems like they quite many remainers quite willfully kind of allowed more vacuum if you like in order for them to make that decision but just Ella on the question of Lady Hale I thought it was so interesting as you wrote about in your column this week there was this kind of deification of her celebration of her at this very same time that people were claiming this had nothing to do with politics and all just about a cold appreciation of law do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah there, I mean talk about lying politicians there was a lot of lying going on <laughs> after the Supreme Court barefaced lying I mean even the fact that you had the first image after the Supreme Court judgment was announced was Ian Blackford the SNP member coming out with his fists in the air, mm. the guy who's openly anti-Brexit, followed by Joanna Cherry and Anna Subri, who is the kind of poster girl for rabid Remainerism. <laughs> um, this was completely about Brexit. And the fixation on Lady Hale was really interesting for a number of reasons. One, 
because just as a side note, it proved how intensively obsessed so many people are with identity politics, mm. even at moments of high politics that we've got at the moment, you know, very serious politics. People were saying, Robert Peston tweeting, saying it doesn't matter what you think about women like Gina Miller, Lady Hale or Joanna Cherry. Isn't it fantastic that they're women in positions of power? You think, what? I mean, what a ridiculous and insulting and blind thing to say, both about women and about the current situation. But, but Lady Hale was used to, I think, kind of dress up what was an incredibly uncomfortable position. Because I don't think that politicians who brought this case, who supported this case, um, who came out with their fists in the air, I don't think that, or I hope that they're not stupid enough to believe what they're doing is actually right. They know what they've done is damaging. They know what they've done is cowardly because essentially rather exactly as you said tom rather than doing political actions and challenging the government in that way what they've done is handed over mm. all their power to you know lady hale and the 10 other judges who are not elected and who are figures like it or loathe it figures of elitism in this country to vast many people and rightly so so they know that what they've done is wrong and cowardly but they dress it up in the figure of Lady Hale with her diamond encrusted spider brooch, which to me was a bizarre <laughs> move to make in terms of symbolism and cushion this as if it's this wonderful um, woman who's got a long history of being pro-feminist and kind of strident in her views. And this is a great moment and let's celebrate her. And if you, this is another way of, if you then criticize the judgment, you're this kind of monster who's criticizing Lady Hale, mm. who's become like the sort of Margaret Atwood of the judiciary you just can't touch her because she's like a saint so it's both a blindness of them not being able to be honest about what they've done but also it's really insulting way to treat us the voters because it's just closing off our ability to talk about what's actually happened mm -hmm. so let's jump for a second back a little bit to kind of over the weekend on monday we had the labor party conference which was actually brought to a pretty speedy halt um, by the announcement on tuesday i don't want to dwell on it for too long because there's so much more to talk about but it's worth clocking it was obviously defined at the beginning by a lot of infighting attempts at the labor nec to get rid of tom watson which proved completely ineffectual jeremy corbyn looking quite damaged by this whole process these kind of bizarre series of votes on the conference floor one for taking a very pro remain position in the second referendum that labor want to have but then another motion effectively trying to defer the decision until after the general election passing with some controversy with calls for a card vote that weren't taken for it seems very much that jeremy corbyn i tend to think out of just a desperate attempt not to admit to himself that he's now leading a pro-remain party being quite <laughs> happy that he's kind of put this off for a little while just not admit to himself he's betrayed everything he once stood for but Luke, i know you've kind of touched on some of these issues in your column do you think it's fair to say that you know however much it tries to languish in constructive ambiguity at this point we all know where this is going. They are holding the second referendum. Most of them want Remain. Is that pretty clear at this point? Well, I think most of Labour Conference has been about rigging the second referendum, hasn't <laughs> it? The proposal is to give voting rights to people who are resident in the UK rather than citizens. You know, So firstly, that's an absolute denigration of the idea of citizenship, completely blurring the, the boundary between people who live here and people who are citizens here. So very worrying from that level. But it's an obvious attempt to rig the second vote. You know, At the same time, Keir Starmer being quite explicit about it again, saying we should lower the age in a mm. second referendum to 16 because he thinks that that will push it over the line. Mm. Imagine being a Labour Leave voter and, and seeing the conference effectively trying to steal your vote from you somehow. I mean, I think they've used the franchise to undermine democracy in a yeah. weird way. It's How have they managed to do it? It's, 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 incre it's incredible. And the barefaceness of it. 
and they they passed it in a, in amongst a motion which was all purportedly about migrant rights, which in effect makes it even more galling. You know, the fact that they've dressed this up as something progressive and in favour of immigration, when really what they're doing is trying to undermine democracy, I think is shocking. Mm. So let's jump back to Parliament for a second, because that's where really where all the action has been this last couple of days. I think it's been really revealing in a lot of ways, Brendan. But um, what did you take away from that kind of first response from Parliament? We saw Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, taking questions, giving a pretty um, devastating takedown, I think, mm. of the opposition. Do you want to say a little bit about that? I've fallen in love with Geoffrey Cox. <laughs> I just think he... I, I, that's one of the most stirring performances I've seen in Parliament in, in my memory. I thought it was really well done. This is not to say Geoffrey Cox is a perfect human being. He failed to stand up to Theresa May's awful withdrawal agreement at various different times. But I think he channeled the mood of the nation in his initial comments uh, when Parliament was reconvened by these 11 justices that no, none of us know who they are. He channeled the mood of the nation because what he said is this is a dead Parliament. It has no right to sit on these green benches because it has twice voted against having a general election. And it is spending its time trying to thwart the votes of 17.4 million people. Absolutely correct. Every single word he said was correct. And in fact, Spiked has made a similar argument over the past few weeks. We've argued that Parliament feels increasingly not just out of touch, but illegitimate, that it shouldn't be there. Like the rump Parliament, it's like, you know, just go, go away, go back to the people. So it feels like it has unbelievably outstayed its welcome and is doing so for the express purpose of stitching up Brexit as much as possible before it even thinks about going back to the people. I mean, that's the that's the really deeply disturbing thing about what's going on in Parliament at the moment. What they're all saying, and they're saying it quite openly, is that we can't have an election. An election would be a trap. An election would be a disaster until we have extended our membership of the European Union until at least January next year, and until we have ensured that no deal is is no longer a possibility and is, is in fact illegal. So what they're effectively saying is we will not go near the people, the rabble, the plebs, the, the throng, until we, the sensible, wise people, have carved out what we consider to be the correct approach to Brexit and the correct approach to the future. It's parliamentary dictatorship. It doesn't feel like a democracy in any meaningful sense of the word. And when I saw those gurning, raging, frothing Labour MPs who were just raging against Geoffrey Cox and Boris Johnson for their use of certain words or for their, or for their refusal to say whether they will extend our membership or not, I just thought, you people have no idea. You have no idea what's going on. You have no idea how much you are loathed. You have no idea of your own complicity in the destruction of democracy in this country. And so I think there are huge numbers of people out there who are looking at Parliament and recognising that it is increasingly just a gathering of incredibly cynical, anti-working class, anti-people, anti-Brexit politicians who are holding off a general election for as long as possible so that they can stitch up politics in the, in the way that they desire. Mm. I mean, it's actually quite repugnant. Ella, Brendan just referenced it there for a second, but I think it's fair to say probably the most striking and revealing moment of the week was this point in which Boris Johnson was being challenged by various opposition MPs 
um, you know, flown back from New York at the UN Climate Summit to kind of respond to these people after the Supreme Court ruling. And there was this intervention, particularly from Labour MP called Paula Sheriff, who basically accused Boris Johnson of stirring division, as many people had. Um, she specifically invoked um, the death of her colleague, Joe Cox, suggested that phrases he was using, for instance, the Surrender Act, which is how the Tories have branded the, the Ben Act, as we've been talking about, was effectively inciting the sorts of threats that her and her colleagues have say that they've received. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and the fallout from it? Because it was absolutely remarkable, I think it's fair to say. It was an incredibly low move. I mean, really scraping the barrel. So Boris Johnson is known for not mincing his words and also being incredibly dramatic, whether that be the kind of suicide vest comment Mm. or actually a more rational and sensible phrase he's been using now, which is the Surrender Act, which to me is a completely correct and sensible way to describe the Ben Bill and to describe the current situation we're in. The word betrayal has been thrown around, you know, the terror of anyone in government using the word betrayal when what we are seeing is the biggest betrayal in recent British history. And Sir Paula Sheriff and others, Jess Phillips and other Labour members and uh, Lila Moore and another Lib Dem members kind of come out and say, they evoke Joe Cox in this really sinister, really ghoulish way, which is effectively just to shut down the other side, because it's not true that using the word surrender or betrayal does not incite the masses to violence. Please give us a bit more credit than that. You know, we are slightly more sensible than kind of a rabid mob with pitchforks. That is not what's happening. What's happening is that the anti-Brexit MPs in Parliament are trying to insulate themselves from criticism by calling everyone who disagrees with them a monster. And that's exactly what's happening with Boris Johnson. And good on him for using the word humbug and actually good on him for being as brave enough to say bullshit when they evoked Joe Cox. And that's not him being insensitive. Mm. That's not him being ridiculous. That's him saying what I think so many people are saying, which is enough enough of this, enough silencing us, enough trying to silence the Brexit vote. And actually, to his credit, though I dislike him for other reasons, Brendan Cox did an interview on the Today programme and elsewhere where he said, this is not just the coarsening of politics, is not just on one side, it's on both sides. And so please stop making out like mm. you are angels on the Labour bench. But just on the point that Brendan raised on, uh, we forget because we're so focused on Parliament, rightly so, but we forget what that the people who are missing are the people outside. And actually, one really interesting thing happened that kind of gives you an example of the mood shift and where people are at. And that is that Arthur Scargill, <laughs> right? Arthur Scargill, the hero or otherwise of the minor strike, wrote into the Telegraph to say, to question the fact that MPs are calling for Boris Johnson to resign. And he said, you know, are they also going to ask the master of the roles to resign? Because he said that the prorogation was legal. I mean, Mm. if you have someone like Arthur Scarborough standing up for (laughs) Boris Johnson, can you not see that that this whole kind of anti-Brexit crusade might be slightly off the mark? And you might be slightly wrong in claiming that the masses of the people are behind you in your crusade against Brexit. I mean, the fact is that the parliament who are now at the base low level of claiming that they are being hounded by the public, this is part of why they won't go for a general election. I mean, Lucy Powell on Politics Live today on Thursday said, you know, I get told on the street that I should be hung, drawn and quartered, which is wrong, but I'm just trying to do my best. Well, I'm sorry, your best is not good enough. And I don't think you should go around telling politicians that they should be beheaded, but you should tell them what you think of them. And I think part of this is politicians not actually truly believing that their lives are at stake. I know that's a controversial thing Mm. to say, but I'm going to say it. They don't think their lives are in danger. What they think is they're terrified of a public who they don't want us to say boo to a goose, basically. Mm. And I think lots of people aren't going to stand for that. Luke, what did you make of all this kind of 
circus. And what do you think people are making of it? I thought it was interesting that um, this week there was a Salvation poll which suggested that there's a um, majority that now wants a general election, which is very unusual because people don't tend to like early general elections. Do you think people are just fed up with all of this, all this kind of hysterics, which we all know what it's really about? Well, just going back to the Jess Phillips moment, because she did manipulate the truth Mm. in her remarks. So what Boris Johnson said was that it was humbug that the language used in Parliament would provoke further violence. She then stood up and said, you called my friend's murder humbug. That is latent dishonesty. And I think people watch it with an increasing sense of confusion as to what exactly has happened to the House of Commons at the moment. But but also it's ironic in a sense, because you know that Jess Phillips is in one sense playing to Twitter. They are all playing yeah. to Twitter. Mm. This is what this faux outrage is all about. It's not substantial. And you're right. They don't fear for their lives genuinely. They want it to be retweeted and they want it to be a clip. So that's why there is all this really emotional face movement and aggression mm. in their eyes. They're playing to a particular crowd, which is online. And as you say, Tom, you know, the polling does not suggest that the people are moved by this. In fact, you know, they are supporting the chance to get rid of them or the chance to move things on. So I think there is this real disingenuous air that arises Mm. to to the point of dishonesty. We need to call out dishonesty when it happens. And what um, Jess Phillips did was dishonest and utterly, utterly wrong. And I think that it, it, it... breeds from this attempt to reach their public on Twitter when in fact the real public are finding it completely disengaging. And it feels like very much to kind of like, as Ella was saying, kind of police the response to it. You know, you can kind of contain the outrage if you can set the terms of it on some respect. And on the dishonesty point, it's so interesting that some of the people who are leading the outrage of this have said far worse things Mm. than Surrender Act. You know, Jess Phillips in 2015 in an interview with Owen Jones talking about Jeremy Corbyn, at which point is very unpopular. She said she would knife him, not in the back, but the front when the moment came. He had Ed Davey, Lib Dem, Grandy, just missed out on being leader last time, who wrote a piece for the Times Red Box, I think it was early this year, maybe March, in which he said that there should be a Remain alliance in Boris Johnson's seat to decapitate the blonde bloke. And it's just they're (laughs) holding people to a standard that not only do they not meet themselves, they, you know, shoot 400 miles over Mm -hmm. every time that they actually open their mouths. But Brendan, we should move on. But is there anything else you want to say on this? Because it was a fascinating bit of this week. Yeah, I I just, I agree with uh, Luke and Ella. I think Jess Phillips lied in Parliament. I mean, she did. There's no beating around the bush. She said that Boris Johnson described the murder of Joe Cox as humbug, and he would not do that. I mean, you know, let's not defame people so freely. He would never do that, and he didn't do that. But I think uh, the thing that I find really repugnant at the moment is the the marshalling of Joe Cox to the very cynical, censorious end of silencing public discussion about Brexit and silencing Brexit itself. I think that is just such a low blow. I mean, sometimes I see it happening and I can't believe it's happening. So as we said on Spike this week, you know, let Joe Cox rest in peace. And, you know, we, we're not being facetious. We genuinely mean that this was a mercifully rare event, a horrific event, and people should not be using it to score political points. I think Parliament, uh, particularly the on the opposition benches, really behaved abominably this week and I think lots of ordinary people will recognise that The other thing is the hypocrisy, just one thing, I mean at half eight in the morning 
which mm. is a bit early for this kind of language, Neil Coyle, Labour MP, <laughs> goes on a tirade against Piers Morgan, calling him a scrote, telling him to go and fuck himself. <laughs> You're a waste of space, air and skin. Um, saying that he's encouraging the fascists by talking about Joe Cox. I mean, this is on the morning after MPs have opined about the use of terrible and destructive language. Um, and He's been up all night. Like yeah, <laughs> completely lost it. But this is the kind of thing, just to remind ourselves, um, this is the kind of thing that, you know, when Trump or figures like Trump slander the press, have a go at the press, everyone says fascism, authoritarianism, however when the shoe's on the other foot and it's, and it's the progressives, in quote marks, who are having a go at the press. I mean, I know it's Piers Morgan. <laughs> no one says anything. The hypocrisy is astounding. So just to look forward a little bit, and it feels like we can't, you know, count on anything for certain happening day to day, but so much is going to happen in the next 30 days or so. You know, will Boris Johnson get a deal? Um, is the extension a certainty? It seems like government are trying to at least hint at the idea that, that they might test the law in such a way that they don't have to get an extension. Will we ever get a general election? Seeming as not only are MPs pretty keen to just let Boris sweat and continue to humiliate himself at this point, but there's even some of them who are talking about they want a second referendum before an election, which would kick it way into next year. But just to get a bit of a sense from each of you, Luke, where do you think things are headed next? Well, I think it is a bizarre spectacle when you have Boris pleading with Parliament to enact a vote of no confidence in his own government. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's where we've reached, literally pleading. As he, he might as well lay the motion himself. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> it is extremely difficult to make any kind of prediction as to how the machinations around the Ben Act will play out because, of course, there are lawyers involved pointing out on both sides how there might be a loophole, how you might be able to send one letter and then another letter cancelling it out. I mean, it is just, this is the level that we've reached. I mean, I think probably there will be an extension and they'll find a way of uh, making sure that we don't leave on, on, on October the 31st because they see that as an existential threat. And I mean, I think it's, we've written on Spike a, a lot about how that is across the board. You know, Boris's government doesn't want no deal. They're pushing for a deal and they think that the threat of leaving on October the 31st is the leverage that they need in order to get a deal. So I think if you are, you know, you're, you're foolish to be in the, in the business of predictions, but I think that, it's a, there's a chance that he will come back with some reworked version of mm. Theresa May's deal with a Northern Ireland only backstop, and perhaps given the uh, the nature of the impending threat on October the 31st, it might just pass. Ella, what do you think is going to happen, or at least what do you think we should be looking out for as the next couple of weeks roll on? <laughs> well, like Lou said, it's hard to make predictions, and they often turn out to be wrong. I'm I'm slightly more pessimistic than I think, or I'm pragmatically pessimistic, and I think it's very very unlikely that. Brexiteers are going to be satisfied come the end of October, either that being us having a general election or the prospect of no deal. I don't think these things are going to happen. But what I am, and this might sound a bit strange, what I am excited about is the rising of tensions. I think that the more politicians are forced to show their true colours, mm -hmm. the more they lose their head in the House of Commons the more the public gets frustrated, I think the more powerful a general election will be because usually they're quite dull affairs. And I mean, before the EU referendum, turnout for generations were historically low. No one really gave a crap. Conferences happened, manifestos were published, whatever. But now I think because the points that we've made in this podcast, because we've been held out of Westminster for so long and our ballot has been restricted for so long, I think that hopefully we could see people turning out in anger and that could mean the rise of a different kind of politics. So I really hope that people would, you know, push aside their old loyalties to Labour or Conservatives and think about doing something a little bit different. But the interesting thing is that 
the further politicians push away a general election, the more clear the argument for the Brexit vote gets. And I think that if we did have a second referendum, and this is not me advocating for it, but if we did have a second referendum, I think they'd be sorely disappointed in the result because I've talked to many, many Remainers from many different backgrounds over the past couple of weeks and lots of them are really sickened by what their own side is doing. So there's a lot of talk about a divided Britain. I actually don't think we're that divided. I think we're pretty united in disgust for politics as it currently stands. And so a general election might be the shakeup we really need. Brendan, last word to you. There are reasons to be cheerful at this point. Um, I'm actually, I flip between violent pessimism <laughs> and really cheerful optimism. I'm pessimistic because I just think the political class and the media class and the chattering class and, and all those people who are predominantly pro-Remain have got such a powerful stranglehold on the ruling ideology of our time and also on what happens in relation to the EU and Brexit and so on. So that makes me pessimistic. It makes me feel powerless. It makes me feel frustrated. But then the optimist in me thinks that the wonderful thing about Brexit, I completely agree with Ella, everything that's happening right now and everything that's happened over the past couple of years proves why we were right to vote for Brexit and proves that we have got to hold on to Brexit because everything that Brexit voters thought, which is that the political class was out of touch and obnoxious and elitist and uh, contemptuous, absolutely contemptuous of ordinary people, all of that has been proven to be absolutely correct. And I think it's hardening people's commitment to the Brexit idea, which is Firstly, leaving the European Union, but it's much broader than that. It's also about shaking up politics and having a, a reckoning with the elitism of politics as it currently exists. So I feel very optimistic on that level. The way I see things panning out, I mean, it's very unpredictable. I think the problem with a second referendum, uh, I also agree with Ella that it could go in, in a direction that the elite doesn't want. But the problem is that they will not have one until they've stitched up the result prior to the referendum itself. So if you look at Keir Starmer and other people, they're saying that it has to be a choice between a credible leave option, which is not leave, or, or remain. So it's, it would be gerrymandered prior to the event to ensure that you don't actually leave the EU. That's the problem. I think come a general election, there could be a real desire among people just to revolt against these MPs. And the thing I would really, really hope for and agitate for is that even people in safe Tory seats and safe Labour seats do something they've never done before and vote for someone different. I think that would be so radical and, and wonderful. But generally speaking, I think the period we're living through is amazingly clarifying. It really has brought into sharp focus the arguments that Spike has been making for quite a long time, which is that the fundamental conflict right now is between ordinary people who think one way and a political establishment that thinks another way. Every single day that becomes clearer and clearer. And the question now, I guess, is how do we ensure that ordinary people win and that this disgusting, decrepit, out-of-touch, anti-democratic establishment loses? That's the question we need to ask. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. Be sure to subscribe. If you have a moment, do give us a rating and a review. And if you can and you'd like to help Spiked continue to do what we do, do consider giving us a donation. Just go to spiked-online.com and hit that big red donates button in the top right of the homepage. Thanks so much. See you next week.